0: Hello and welcome to the Breakdown Podcast. I am Jamie Finch-Penninger and I am joined by Pat Shaw to discuss all things cycling. Uh, today we'll be talking Melbourne to Warrnambool, the Worlds and anything else that takes our interest. Um, we'll probably also be talking about the, the just-happened retirement of Pat Shaw. Um, Pat, how does it feel to be nearly retired?
1: Well, I suppose at the moment it hasn't really been much different because I'd normally um, give myself a two-week break or three-week break at this time of the year. But, yeah, I've been trying to work out what's next and um, trying to find some things to do in the cycling game as well.
0: I've um, noticed in particular recently you've um, been reminiscing a bit about your career, posting pictures from um, from races that you've done and uh, getting in touch with people who have uh, been a part of your career. Um, looking, looking back at this stage, I mean, is there any one thing that stands out or is it just, you know, a collection of what you've been doing up until this time, which is... Um, Um, which is, you know, captured um, what it's meant to you to be a cyclist.
1: Yeah, I suppose I think I've always um, enjoyed most about cycling and what it's done for me is the people that I've met along the way, really. Um, There's results in different races that you've done that have impressed you or you've enjoyed. And some races, I've actually haven't got the best result, but there've been probably performances where um, on another day you probably would have won a big race, so... Um, sometimes the ball doesn't roll your way. But um, the one thing I've got to say is that um, I have met some brilliant people along the way, which has made it worthwhile. That's why I want to stay in cycling. But definitely my stint with uh, Andrew Christie Johnson and Steve Price has been probably the part that's given my cycling the most substance. I know that I wouldn't have the passion I have for it today if it wasn't for them Um, and the amount of work um we've all put into this team um to create basically a, a bit of a dynasty um it is the go-to team if you want to go to the next level out of Australian domestic scene and i um, very proud of what we've been able to accomplish in that uh, period of time I've been with the team
0: what's what's been the change in the cycling scene since you came onto the um, came onto it I mean and compared to these days.
1: Um, Yeah, I suppose uh, the big changes are it's extremely tactical and very the 1% and also playing the game correctly now and I'd speak that probably more of the bigger events and knowing how the teams ride. Um, Most teams are pretty um, understandable like what tactics they'll run. Like Team Sky's obviously got a very simple tactic and most teams now have their sort of characteristics they run where I think it was a little bit more... Uh, free reign in, you know, a decade ago, let's say, or even seven years ago. Um, and then back here domestically, I think that we're now starting to see that teams are realising that if they don't really race as a team, even if riders aren't strong enough to get the result, they definitely won't get a result. And um, that's definitely transitioned as well, because when I sort of won the NRS in 2010, I really think the Pratties, um team then which now is the avani ISOways, were the only team that raced as a team really most other teams had a few good riders um, and would try and um and win races but there was never really that um camaraderie or sacrifice that there is on that team and was even back then so that's also changed a lot too that now even domestically here we're seeing a much more professional um style of racing
0: yeah, and what, what do you think? Um, where do you think the domestic scene is at at the moment? And obviously, there's been you know races cancelled and um, teams going belly up that sort of thing in recent times. But it obviously it, it engenders an interesting level of racing um, with some very good athletes. So, where do you see the domestic scene um, com- in comparison to where it's been in the past?
1: I think it's difficult because some things are probably a lot better and some things are probably not as good or equally as bad as what it used to be. But I think we used to have a great series back in 2010 because it was, it was, that was all we sort of really wanted was races to do. Now we've sort of got to the point where we want to grow. And when I say we, I mean cycling as a whole, want to grow what is racing in Australia domestically to potentially in the future have it as a, a viable um, series that could be an international league. You know, international teams could come and compete um, in seven or eight races in the year or something like that. And that could be, uh, that's what I sort of have a vision of. Um, But I think even though there was races taken off the calendar this year, um, I think the people that ran events this year did an an amazing job. I know that I said about prize money and things from Tour of Canberra, but the organisers did a fantastic job and important to remember so many volunteers involved. The event was still good. It's just that I think that prize money is, in actual fact, a a requirement to keep the professionalism there as well in the event and give it a substance, um, which also makes riders race harder as well. And people can say, oh, they'll race hard and even if there isn't prize money. Well, I can tell you it's (laughs) untrue. But, um, like I said, the races that we're on were fantastic. I don't really have an event that in the NRS calendar this year that I couldn't say was fantastic. Tour of King Valley stands out for me. Um, and the GTR-organised events have been amazing. Uh, with Summer of Cycling's coverage of the events, no one can say that they haven't done a fantastic job there. Um, so I think everything, it's almost as if we're put in such a terrible position that we all f- have fought, you know, a pretty gritty battle this year. And I think we're going to come out of it better for it. I'm hoping next year there'll be events, maybe new events added to the calendar. Um, I'm very interested in helping in that side of things and I want to try and get an NRS event back to Ballarat as well. Uh, So I think the future's bright, but I think we've just got to realise that we can't depend on Cycling Australia to be the focal point of making the series good. It's got to be full-on event organisers, basically.
0: Yeah, I wrote something after the National Capital Tour, um, mostly about how cycling can be, you know, very doggy dog, and everyone's looking out for themselves at the time. And that was based on me talking to a number of, uh, in particular, team managers, and they were all talking about things that would benefit their own team, but not necessarily. I mean, and maybe maybe one or two of the suggestions would have grown cycling as a whole, but um, they were they're very self centric and making the arguments. From okay, what's going to benefit my team, and then going on, and then post-justifying that to the larger cycling community, and I think that the discussions we've been having in recent months, in particular, have been a lot more productive um, than what I was hearing, what I was hearing then. And I, I think there is a larger sense of camaraderie, and maybe maybe part of that is adversity, as you as you said, Pat. So it'll be interesting to see how how, um, how it develops going forward, and hopefully we're talking about yeah bigger and better um, nrs next season so uh, all the best for you pat going forward um i think a lot of people in the cycling community have a lot of respect for you and i i know that everyone wishes the best for you going forward um whether that's in media or whatever you decide to do um yeah all the best
1: thanks mate yeah i'm looking forward to new challenges
0: okay off and we'll now discuss your final race of your career, um, though it was an exciting one from other perspectives as well, uh, Melbourne to Warner So we'll be back with that in a sec. Okay, and we are back with Melbourne to Warnable chat now. And that was a humdinger of a race, wasn't it, Pat? There. Um, the wind got up, and it looked, I was only following it on Twitter, unfortunately but it looked like it was a really hard race all day, and it ended up with the breakaway taking the win with uh, Nathan Elliott uh, soloing clear in the final kilometres and Joss winning over Aiden Tooby with your teammate, Robbie Hucker, finishing third there. Um, Nathan Elliott, of course, of Kenyan Riders Down Under and Aiden Tooby of Subaru and Swiss. Um Pat, how was it out there on the road? Was it as tough as, uh, as it seemed?
1: Yeah, look, um, the break established pretty quickly and we had a good representation from our perspective. So obviously we weren't chasing and then uh, the end Swiss team had Aiden Toovey there who they felt pretty confident in and fair enough too after his ride in Graftonville earlier this year. So they weren't keen to ride and and really everyone else that was represented there was happy to roll the dice with their one guy there. So it turned into a very negative race really um, Everything sort of fell back on us as a team and really we couldn't do anything because we had two guys in there that we were very happy with. Um, the other side of it was, was there was still a lot of other good riders there too, Nathan Elliott, Aidan uh Chris Harper, um, uh, Dan Fitter as well. Um, so um, I suppose from my perspective, it's a bit disappointing that go, the, the teams are just happy to roll the dice with one person. Um, Obviously, we know the break got out to 20-plus minutes. Um, That side of it sort of disappoints me, but in the end, it it was either roll along at 18 k's an hour or have a go, and I said to Mark O'Brien, let's do what we've done once before here um, and go up uh, the climb before we swing left, and we're on top of the range there, and it's just really windy, and I knew the wind was strong. So we did that and it split the race immediately. Um, and then for there, it was a full chop off. We were doing 65, 66 k's an hour quite often, um, slowing down to sort of 50 occasionally if there was a bit of a um, couple of people missed some turns. And the break, we'll bring it back really quick. I think we took about eight minutes in the first sort of 25 k's of swapping off and really thought, oh, at that point, we didn't know that they had 20 minutes. So we thought, oh, we must be back to about six but then um, as we further swapped off and we obviously hit Camperdown, uh, when we hit Camperdown, I think we are at about four minutes. Uh, Mark O'Brien rode that entire climb really hard um, and brought the group back to two, two, two and two and a quarter minutes, something like that. And it was at that point we discussed as a team that how we're feeling uh, physically and who's here Um my main issue was Jacob Kaufman. Um, he was riding fantastic. He obviously had support Stu Shore in that front group as well and then Aiden Tuvey in the break. Um, so I uh, said to Andrew that we should roll the dice with the guys that are in the front and therefore we stopped. Um, effectively, we stopped working as a group and um, started attacking, which was still 55 k's to go. And Yeah, it was a fantastic event. I think it really I – th- I think – if we didn't chase from behind, the event wouldn't have been half as good. I know the winners won the race and they make the race, and that's what we read about in the in the news report and all that. But if we didn't chase from the back and then have people actually have a go, we wouldn't have seen half as good an event. So I really applaud not only the guys, obviously Mark O'Brien and myself that split it, but the people that worked effectively in that front group to then make it a bike race. So it was actually interesting because we could have... Very easily had at 130k mark, everyone else pulling out from the NRS race and having 12 guys in the front racing, and it would have been boring. Um, I think it shows as well how to win a race if you're an individual. You've got to get in the break, and Nathan Elliott did that, and um, he he well and truly deserves a big win like that. He's been knocking on the door of wins all year, Um, and he's got to be the most unlucky bike rider I've ever met. (laughs) So... um, yeah, congratulations to Nate and young Aiden Tuvi, and also to my teammates. Um, obviously, Robbie Hucker and Pat Lane, who, you know, 280k swapping off all day.
0: Yeah, it's funny how you see those same names pop up um, at the top of the leaderboard um, as Grafton to Inverell. So um, at Grafton, it was Pat Lane in the break with Aiden Tuvi and Nathan Elliott. So um, it's it's. It's probably not as it's probably not an accident that you see those same names up there. It's um it's a race that really suits those sort of sort of really tough riders who can put it in over two hundred kilometers and then make that difference when it comes to the end. Um and yeah and the point that you made about the the um the peloton chasing was was very well taken as well. I mean, without that without that chase, I mean you you've just got the the breakaway sitting up and waiting uh, with a twenty minute advantage. Until the end, and then, and the races. I think it would lose it would lose a lot of its luster if there wasn't that chase of behind and the will they, weren't they sort of um, vibe of the peloton catching. Um, one one other point I, um, I'll ask of you is the there were a few sprinters who were part of that initial um, split when you guys um, split it. Split it initially. Um, I think Scott Sunderland was part of it. Uh, Jesse Kerrison and
1: Jack it- was there as well. Um, who mm-hmm. else might have been there? Um, they can sprint pretty quick to a line. Um, oh, well, you know, Jake Kaufman's not slow. Um, so he was there as well. But he was always expected to be at the front of the race. I think everyone sort of spoke about he and I leading into the event. And basically everyone shut us out. And then we shut each other out of the race. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you're right. There were sprinters there. And that's why we had to re-split it up um, camper down and make sure that if we were going to make contact with the front group, that we didn't have fast men there. But hats off to, obviously, we rode as hard as we could um, for AJ, just so he just held on, but um, hopefully got rid of everyone else. And we got rid of everyone that was quick, except for Jesse Kerrison. And I spoke about him um, after the Tour of Taz, that um, I really thought that he um, was going to have a big race at the Warning. I was concerned about the distance for him, but I did mention that, He's the fittest that I've ever seen him. I've never seen him actually as lean as what he is. I'm not saying he couldn't get leaner because I think he he should keep trying to get um, leaner again. And I think he really made up for his non-selection at Worlds by showing that, yeah, I can make big distance. I've put in the work and I'm, and, I'm ready to take the next step. And I think next year is going to be a huge year for him yeah he's really earned
0: that climbing sprinter status. I got in a bit of a stoush, unfortunately with state of matter on Twitter um who I don't know if they misread one of my tweets, but in any case um they they took umbrage at at one where I suggested that um I think I said something along the lines of oh if they can drop um if they can drop jesse from from the break, then that'll be that'll may that'll mean that it's a lot more likely that the um so if they can drop Jesse from Pelton that'll mean there's that a lot more likely. Um, that the break works together and comes into the finish um, and overhauls the initial breakaway. So, um, but I think, I think they assume that um, I was suggesting that Jesse would be easy to drop because he's not really, he's shown that he over the tour of Taz and a number of other races that he's, you know, really, you know, one, not one of the best climbers, but certainly up there with, you know, top 20 probably in the peloton at the moment. And, When you can climb as well as that you can hang on to a lot of races and end up sprinting for a lot of extra wins
1: yeah i think a lot of people don't realize too until you've raced a melbourne or warnerball and done it properly um a the rider themselves doesn't know what they're capable of at the end of 280k because sometimes it's really strange the sensations you can get you can feel like you're out on your feet and you can actually put out and produce your best numbers so at no point where we sort of like, oh, no, Jesse's here. We're still happy with Jesse being there because, you know, we had AJ as well who was um, a fast guy on the line. But if it had have come down to us battling it out for the win, I think you probably would have seen someone win solo anyway from our group just like you did from the front group because um, the guys that know they can't win the sprint aren't going to save anything for, you know, the trip to the takeaway restaurants after the start, after the race. It's all on the line and you finish the Melbourne or Warrnambool, with the empty tank because you don't want that regret. Um, you don't get a lot of chances at making the final there. And so, yeah, so I don't think, I know he wasn't hard to drop, but it definitely wasn't like, oh, can we drop Jesse? It was more, can we just get rid of whoever's here that's not going to be good enough? Because the ones that are going to be good enough, if they're feeling good enough on the warning, they're going to ride because they don't want to lose the chance to win that race. Um I probably reckon the one we really need to get rid of was probably Brenton Jones. In fact, you know, like everyone else was um, really motivated, but because he was one out there and everyone else sort of had a teammate, I think he was quite conscious of that. And so he was reluctant to really give it a hundred percent until he knew that, you know, that it was going to be for the win.
0: Yeah. And uh, Scott Sunderland put in a decent defense of his title. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't the sort of race where he, he was going to excel. And, the way it was raced, and um, he ended up coming in in, I think, the third group in the end. Yeah, but yeah, but definitely a Melbourne to Warrnambool for the ages. Um, with Nathan Elliott taking the win, couldn't be a much more popular winner, I'd say, uh, than, than Nathan. Uh, you mentioned his bad luck earlier in the season. Um, he had that one race um, in the Victorian Championships taken off him, um, where I think everyone considered that he won fair and square, but... Um, there was some, I can't remember the exact issue with the Commissaires. Oh, there's a red the flag,
1: there's a red flag out on a corner and a bunch went through the red flag, I believe. But yeah, he won that. That was a Metro champs, but he's had like punches at bad times. He breaks equipment often, but um, you're right. He is a popular winner, but any, I think anyone's going to be pretty popular winner of the Melbourne and Warrnambool. It's kind of that race that You know, people talk about like, oh, is it in its dog days? Well, it's never, ever going to be because it just carries such history and such substance. And, you know, um, even Nathan Elliott's tweeted in the past days, you know, he's really now only just starting to realise how big of an achievement it was. Like, obviously, it means a lot to him to win a race. But sometimes when you win the big races, it doesn't really sink in until you sort of separate yourself from everyone saying well done the whole time because you're just concentrating on being appreciative of their um, of their compliment, that you sit back and think, you know, F me. You know, I've really done this and, and suck it in. And, and he knows he's always now, forever, doesn't matter. He's won a Melbourne or Warrnambool, and people will talk about that. Yeah, and in the women's,
0: it was Tessa Fabry who won the race after High Five actually had a really unlucky day with a number of um, mechanical, well, I was about to say mechanical incidents, but they're mostly crashes. And uh, Beck wyzak for instance, broke her frame um, after being crashed into, from what I heard. And Kendall Hodges had to pull out as well. And in the end, it was Tessa Fabry who won the women's event there, taking a, a, a nice little payback at home. And Fiona Yard, the second, and in third there was Jessica Lane. So it's a pity there weren't more, more women out on the... On the race, um, from what I heard, there was a bit of lack of communication with the NRS teams about the fact that there was, you know, there was equal prize money um, for the first few places on the line and it didn't quite filter through to the to the teams and riders and there had to be a bit of a late call out to to get the girls out there, which is a bit of a pity because you need a bit of prep going into a Melbourne or Warrnambool, 277 Ks isn't particularly easy. Um, Pat, what what... What is it that makes the Melbourne Ball just that extra little bit special? Because let's face it, if it was just an average NRS race, people wouldn't be turning up in the numbers that they do and it wouldn't be getting the sort of media attention that it does.
1: Yeah, well, I think that the most special thing about it is that you just uh, hear stories, probably mostly war stories of the past and people talk about... Even the easy additions, there's always someone saying, you know, how hard was that? You know, and it's always, you've always got someone telling you how big of a challenge it is. And I think that's the big thing for people. They're like, you know what? I'm up to this, you know. And they might never have done the Melbourne Awareness before, but it sounds grueling, and it is, but it sounds grueling in their description. It's 280Ks, it's going to be windy, all those things. It just, for sports people the challenge is what they do it for you know a lot of the time it's how high can i raise my bar and each bar is different for each person but i think it's the challenge um and you know i've spoken to a lot of people about this over the past weeks and i'm going to do more of it in the next few weeks as well about what a person actually wants to achieve from the Melbourne and Warrnambool and why it's acceptable to want to achieve different things from the Warnable. I think it's fantastic that there's people, and I know that people say, oh, bullcrap, but I think it's fantastic that people go there just to ride it. And I think this year we saw a lot of the grades stick to their grades, not mix in with other grades. And it wasn't all that dangerous from my perspective, but um I also think that there's sort of like four tiers of people that are riding the event. And as long as they stick to where they are, like their desire for the event, so if you're just wanting to complete it, don't get in the front and try and mix it up and and then sit on and things like that. And if you're trying to win it, don't go to the back. Um, and it'll be a safe event. But I think that the numbers this year were fantastic. I think it was great that there was women that turned up that um, even on late notice still turned up because, yes, there was equal prize money. But... The prize money was important, and like I said before, because it adds substance to the event and it gives it a really big meaning. Um, It sounds silly that winning it's not enough, but it just isn't because there's costs involved to get to the event, but also just because the women turned up and they had a race and they had a podium that had full podium, so three girls received their prizes for first, second, and third, and they showed that they can get there. And they didn't lose an extreme amount of time in what was probably one of the hardest additions for five years, I reckon. Uh, so to all the girls out there, um, don't be concerned about the distance because you'll actually surprise yourself. But you've got to have a go initially to know that you can make it maybe the year after. And it's actually on to the women a bit to start turning up to it. And there'll be some DNFs. There's DNFs in the men's as well, um, but hopefully, grows to a really good event for them as well.
0: Yeah, well, I think everyone wants Melbourne to be as you know strong as it can be. And there's been a lot of chat about um, elements that can be improved. Um, I know in the past that you've been in favour of um, splitting the splitting the the grade riders and the and the NRS riders uh, for safety issues, but it sounds like you might have turned a corner on, on that a bit um but um, i just think yeah. i think
1: as long as people are showing each other etiquette and being safe i think that that's the important thing and etiquette in a 280k race is much different to etiquette in a criterion now 280k you've got a lot of time to move up and do things and you know if you're in the wrong position before the crosswind you've probably had about 30 kilometers to get yourself in position so it's on you um I thought I had to come back through the, the bunch a few times. I broke a seat clamp um, bolt at one point and had a few issues there. So I came back through the group and um, passing through wasn't a difficult thing to do. So I was actually really quite surprised at the amount of etiquette, even from the lower grades. So it was, it was fantastic to see.
0: Well, yeah. And um, speaking, of, speaking of crosswinds and setting up for that, we'll move on to the Worlds now and a discussion of the, the big race there okay back and talking about the world championships now and i don't don't know pat was it was it an interesting race was it not an interesting race i mean it was certainly a unique spectacle with the with the way it played out um in the, in the men's elite road base and with the split coming with 170 kilometres to go, um, I don't think anyone has. Has there ever been a race where the splits come with that with that far to go? I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, but what oh, was it? I what think, were your I opinions? Think
1: about, I think in some of the windy classics it can happen, but yeah, not in a world championship. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, I think there the was the right plan by edicts in, oh, not edicts, but the, basically is edicts, it's Belgium, and, and to split it that early. That was really smart. Um, the, 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 the good crosswind riders made it, except for Renshaw, who had mechanical. Um, Durbridge obviously crashed. Um, but basically, most of the guys that know how to ride the wind, they made that group. Um the biggest mistake that Ed, that Belgium didn't do was re-split it or wait for the other group and then re-split it. I think that would have been a better... I never saw them winning the race as soon as it split, um, and they didn't in the end. But, yeah, I don't care. If you split it in the in those crosswinds like that and you've got the numbers, uh, it sometimes can be a disadvantage because so much onus then falls on you to ride that to the finish. And I think... Um, yeah, I think they, they actually rode tactically pretty poorly in the end um, once it's split. Um, I, I, I even think that maybe even if they still rode it until that group sat up at the back and then started to attack, um, there would have been a better style of racing. The, all their riders that are in the Belgian squad are used to that um, classic style racing. I think they would have come out of it a lot better.
0: Yeah, it was an odd one, wasn't it, with the Belgians just Riding on the pace um, at the front for the last for the last fifty kilometres in particular was the bit that vexed me because sh- sure once they've um, once they've put away the group behind and you know the Germans get frustrated at the Belgians and um, mucking up the pace pace yeah. in that second group there. What um, once once they're three minutes down or whatever it was um, with forty kil forty kilometres to go, you think okay well we've got six guys in this in this front group. Um, you know, maybe we should make some use of them and put some and put some onus on you know the Italians who the other team with big numbers in that in that front group to chase. And it it just never really happened. I think um, we expected to see like like you mentioned before the race, the likes of Greg Van Avermaet, um going off the front, um, making some attacks, which would have been very hard to chase down, um, and certainly would have forced some decisions and. Um, forced the other teams to use up some bickies um, go, coming into that final as well. So it was, surprised that they, it was surprising that they said, "Okay, Tom Boonen, yes, he's definitely going to out sprint Mark Cavendish, Peter Sagan, uh, Alexander Kristoff, Michael Matthews, all the other great sprinters that were in that. Well, game. everyone there was
1: pretty yeah. good, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I was just just making the point that it was surprising that um, they decided that um, Boonen was the best best card to play. I mean, sure, he's you know, Gregoire obviously former world champion, and but he's not the sprinter that he used to be um, back in you know mid two thousands when he'd win multiple stages of the Tour de France and green jerseys and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I, I think they played it totally wrong, and I think um, I'd said in our pre-worlds discussion that Greg Van Avermaeck would would win, <laughs> and I think they never gave him a chance. I think it was why would you have such an asset like him and not actually u- use him. Really at all. Um, I don't know if he had bad sensations, but if he did, he probably would have ridden the front. So I'm not sure what was going on. also think that probably um, they, they could have just said to someone like Bosenhagen, just let's go up the road, you know, with one of their riders that was riding the front, put the pressure on basically the rest of the group. Christoph would have been happy with that situation. Um, probably would have helped them decide who was riding for the sprint because they both <laughs> sprinted each other um which I sort of expected. I was a bit um, interested to see how that would play out too. but yeah, I just think it was just a horrific replay of um, when oh, what, what was it where uh, Stannard beat them uh, beat Edicts in the classic um, three on the, up, in yeah, words, yeah. And just and it was just like, what did we do wrong there? Well, you just did it again, basically. Um, yeah, I had no confidence in burn and winning um, at any point unfortunately I really like him as a rider and have enjoyed his career but he was never going to beat Sagan and and, uh, Cavendish and look he probably did well to finish where he did I think in the end Um, Cavendish made a real bundle and set sort of boxed himself in um, and then looked back to be angry at everyone else but he boxed himself in which probably cost him at least a very good throw to the line with Sagan but how, how special is Sagan? And um, like he said, he owes a fair bit to uh, uh, Nid Solo for not closing the door on him because it could have been quite messy in the finale.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a really interesting sprint in the final there. I mean, I think you've alluded to most of the main um, talking points coming out of it. Um, Christoph was, of course, incredibly unhappy with Bosenhagen after the sprint. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm guessing those two don't talk too much because he, he, <laughs> he, he spoke a lot about assuming... That um, Bosenhagen was going to lead him out, um, rather than rather than you know it, than then working out a plan from beforehand and knowing when when the other one was going to go. So it was yeah, it was a bit of a weird one from the Norwegians who you know they normally ride very well as a team, but it just didn't work out there. And as you said, you know Sargon coming from a mile back and. Yeah, oh, the other one was uh, Mark Cavendish not following Adam Blythe's lead-out because Adam Blythe did a pretty good lead-out. Yeah, I thought so um, too. Cavendish, I mean, maybe maybe it was a touch too early. is what what Cav was thinking. But, I mean, it would have got him up to, you know, third wheel or something like that and he would have been able to launch with a bit of speed.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think um, another one to think about is, like, obviously um, with the – been throwing, uh, been squirting, should I say, by Deacon Cobb. Um, And then it came out about the whole nationality versus trade team. And I think, like, what was interesting that played out in that final too was Terpstra was away and I think effectively could have won. Um, And hats off, like, he's an incredible rider to watch. He's an animator too. But um, basically, ethics riders chased him back. Um, And then obviously Italy took over. But then they lost out anyway. So maybe a bigger role with the dice and who follows Eddick's. I know Lefebvre's very happy with the season. They finished top of the standings in the UCI World Tour as a team. But those world stripes add so much um, context to your team. And I don't know, as a fan of cycling, I'm glad that Peter Sagan gets another 12 months. For some reason, I feel like the last 12 months went too quick.
0: Well, yeah, certainly. No hardship to imagine him in the world stripes next year and illuminating eliminating all the races. Um, yeah, it was it was worth noticing with that discussion um, about because it was overheard on the on the moto um, camera that Degan Cole was saying to Yen's uh, um, "Oh, I'm chasing for your teammate," which seemed a bit odd at the time because they were wearing. Wearing different jerseys, but it was a reference to the fact that Andre Greipel was in the group and Jens shared and he both ride for Lotto-Soudal. Um, but it's worth noting that Deckenkolb he doesn't ride for Lotto-Soudal. Lotto he rides for Giant, and um, he he was look he was trying to motivate somebody else in the breakaway um, to help with help with the chase or not to disrupt the chase. So it it wasn't a case of there being any collusion. I think it was more. Um, what you do a lot of, Pat, you, you like to motivate the groups that you're riding with, with various arguments. Um, have, you, have you ever used that one before in the past?
1: Um, no, I've never used that one. I've used plenty of other ones. Um, but no, I, I, yeah, it's definitely, with Deacon Gob, it wasn't about uh, the whole thing. Like, it was definitely a nationality thing. for him. He was just using on what he could. But he was frustrated as well because he probably looked at that circuit and thought those people in the front group, if he was there, he probably was a good chance himself. So a lot of frustration there. But that's good. It shows passion. It shows that he actually cares. Um, but I also really don't mind what he did, to be honest, because um, I know you, were, you weren't you were happy about it. But I sort of thought, um, no, I'd squirt him in the face a little bit and just let him know that, you know, maybe... He needs to have it. And then Debuchere went back to last wheel and never moved from there afterwards, actually. So I thought that was actually quite funny. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's I don't think there was anything aggressive about it. He definitely went on a bit too much when he went back there and then he's carrying on again. As we heard, you know, he was talking about Greipel and, and et cetera. But I think he was also disappointed in how poorly the rest of his teammates were riding because Kittel was beyond useless. And um, really, Deacon Cobb was the only one that actually tried to to assist getting that group motivated. Um, but yeah, I think it was a fantastic world championships in the, in the sense that the, the real gritty hard, hardened riders this season fought out for the win. Um, I think Cavendish obviously it showed that he's definitely got another 12 months in him easily.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, well, yeah. a Brief discussion of the women's now, unfortunately the women's race didn't go through the Qatari desert. So, Instead, we got um, seven seven laps of the of the pearl circuit, which was yeah a bit less inspiring, um, and doesn't really offer the same in in terms of conversation pieces at the end of the race. I mean, I suppose the main the main talking point was um, where was the Australian lead out, and um, did the Dutch do the right thing? I think. To be honest, I think the Dutch—they um, rode the race very strongly. They tried to break it up from about 50 kilometers out, and they found that that wasn't wasn't happening. So they um, decided to put it all in for Kirsten Wild in the sprint. And you know, nine times out of ten, when she starts her sprint at 200 to go, um, person build is going to win. And it was only Emily Diedrichsen coming off the the wheel there in the final 50 meters or so. Um, that spoiled that from happening and amazing that a 20 year old domestic can get the, get the world championship stripes for next year. Be interesting to see how they use her, I suppose. <laughs> but um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't quite the talk talking point um, race that the men's men's event was.
1: Yeah. I think um, the Dutch did the right thing. You have to try like, and they did, but you could see even in the men's, like the circuit was just too quick. Um, and with a lot of the walls up as well around the um, circuit, the, the wind probably didn't affect much at all. And if it was getting in, it was probably more funneling head or tail. Um, you know, I didn't hear reports of um, what the conditions really were like on the circuit for the women. But also, um, you know, they, the Dutch nearly pulled it off all the same. So um, it wasn't a lack of effort. Fantastic to see a young 20-year-old pull it off. It's like... A, a bit of a dream story type thing in a fairy tale, which is lovely. But you you are right. How will she represent that jersey next year? Who knows? She might come on leaps and bounds because of having that ability to have that on her shoulders, the the striped jersey. But um, yeah, I I think that from an Australian perspective, it 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 ended probably well and truly below par. Another one where I, I'm big on this. Talk up a big favourite. So, you know, there was a lot of talk about um, Hoskins getting the job done and being a real, you know, a number one chance she was and she still should have been, but um, the delivery wasn't there and um, can't create miracles, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, um, there was a point um, with about eight kilometres to go, or, or about that, um, where Captain Garfoot and Lauren Kitchen appeared um, on the front, and Chloe Hosking wasn't with them. I don't know what the hell happened um, beforehand um, to to get them to that point. But um, they then disappeared from the front, and um, Chloe Hosking had to do her own thing um, to get to get back up. And she was doing her own positioning. So yeah, so it ended with her being about seventh wheel going into the sprint, and um, she and she didn't have any power to go beyond. Um, I think Bastianelli was the wheel that she was on there. Is was you know, obviously a very good sprinter in her, own right? Um, yeah, but it was it was a bit of an anticlimax from what we had hoped to be, you know, a gold medal ride for Australia. So, um, a bit, a bit disappointing. Um, the championships as a as a whole um, was it was it a bit of underperformance from Australia, or was it a case of you know they're just being better riders on the day in in the world in the entire world? <laughs>
1: Oh, I think um, I think our junior men were fantastic. I think um, I think we've got a bright future there with um, Sweeney and Christy Johnson. Um, I think they are fantastic. Um, Mackie Carter as well. So I think that's really positive. Um, I think in um, the the elite women, I think Garfoot's time trial was an exceptional effort. In eight seconds off, it could have been anything. You know, like doesn't take much on a day to be 10 seconds quicker um, so I don't think it was um, a poor championships but I think that's a difficult one. I think if you went through the nations I think Denmark was extremely um, powerful in, in the races like if you have a look at their um, medal tally I think it was pretty high and um, and obviously Sagan well I don't think really many people had him out of their top two. Um, even if it was a bunch kick. So um, I don't think Australia performed poorly. And I think especially in the men's race, I was actually really um, happy with their effort. Uh, I know everyone was quick to ride off Caleb and you know say how poor it was and everything else. Well, there's a lot of different things that come into play in crosswinds. You only need a guy to punch her in front of you, all these types of things. Um, so my scorecard wasn't too bad, but I think the World Championships probably was a bit of a, actual event was a bit polo par like there was no spectators which was an interesting one um, and I think that was a big reflection um, but yeah we'll just see what they can do in um, England in a couple of years.
0: Yeah off to Bergen next year um, though from what we saw at the Tour des Fjords where um, Lee Howard won a stage um, the organisation <laughs> needs a bit of work there so it'll be interesting to mm. see if they, if they improve that at all um, and it'll be interesting to see what a guy like Miles Scottson goes on and does from from here. I mean, obviously, very disappointed not to be in the Olympics team suit, um, but he's got a, lot, a big future ahead of him, and I know a lot of people are very impressed with how he's going so far. Um, running with wanty group Gobert at the moment, but I think he'll probably be looking to take that next step up um, to you know, world tour or riding you know consistent world uh, pro Conti presence next year.
1: Yeah, I heard a rumor that he might actually be in a higher team than that, but we'll wait and see. Oh well, you're better connected than me. Um, yeah, well, we'll, <laughs> yeah, well, well,
0: we'll wrap it up there. Um, I'll, I'll announce the breakdown podcast awards as well. We're looking to looking to do a few awards for the uh, mostly the local racing scene. And um, we'll be putting a few nominees up on Twitter and seeing if you guys out there in the in the Twitter sphere have any ideas for us about um, awards we can do. Just a, just a bit of fun, essentially, and um, a bit of recognition for the for the local riders. Because I was reading the Cycling Australia Hall of Fame list the other day, and I decided, hey, why not? I mean, we don't necessarily get too much recognition for NRS, NRS riders. Um, outside of outside of this podcast, so uh, we'll give it a go, see if it, it captures any interest out there. Um, Pat, you got any early nominees for for any awards that you want to see?
1: Um, I think that maybe we could have um, the most improved rider. That, that would be a good one for people to to um, give us some nominees. I think most improved team um, is obviously another one. Uh, favourite event, you know, maybe we could give a favourite event um, and that could be riders or people that are following and um, that is also women and men, of course, um, in those categories. So that'll be my ones to throw up.
0: Yeah, I've got I've got a brief short list but um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what people come up with. So, yeah, uh, make sure you follow us on Breakdown Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can chat to us there and yeah, look forward to seeing you out at the Australian Summer of Racing because unfortunately it shuts down a bit before then. But the quit the scene's getting up and going, so get out to your local cycling club, support what they've got going on, and yeah, enjoy getting out in the bike yourself. Um, well, hopefully, we'll be back with you in the next few weeks. Um, I've got some ideas planned for episodes, uh, hopefully, you enjoy them. And we shall catch you around then. Thanks for being with us, Pat. Um, Always great to chat to you and enjoy your uh, retirement.
1: Thanks very much, mate. Um, We'll catch you around. See ya.